Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we are really excited to have some folks, uh, Paul Isaacs and friends, um, coming to join us in the second hour to talk from sound devices about their new uh, digital receiver, their wireless receiver, the, the and so um, the A20. Um, so uh, so stay tuned for that. I'm really excited about the product. Uh, it's, it's probably not something that all of us would buy, but but the technology is really cool. So you definitely want to uh, definitely want to see it. So I'm super excited about it in the second hour. So stay tuned for that and and do a little research. You can go to sound devices it's on their front page. I know we didn't give you very much time to plan for it because we couldn't say anything. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it's released. Uh, it, um, it is. Uh, uh, it, it was released yesterday or announced yesterday, and um, and so go check their website out. Think about questions. Think about think about what you want to know about that product. Uh, we have um, the people to talk to about it in the second hour. So uh, definitely take advantage of the time. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the questions. Um, Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. Our first question is in from Deborah Woodfork in Washington, D.C. Using the Insta360 link with a M2 MacBook Air. Zoom use works fine when using Microsoft Teams. I don't see my video as with other cameras, a Brio FaceTime iPhone 11 Pro. Does anyone have issues and suggestions with using Microsoft Teams and the Insta360 link? I haven't heard of any issues. I haven't actually used the the 360 link with uh, with the micro with uh, Teams, uh, but I haven't seen any any specific issues. Um, I think that uh, um, it may you may want to check to make sure that your your Insta 360 app isn't opened um, at the same time and just see if that works and see if it's if it's somehow only when it talks to the app. We, we've heard that happens with PCs. Have not seen that happen with Macs in other in other areas, but it may be for some reason these two interlink in a certain way. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, at least on Windows, yeah, you're right. It does have that problem. If you have your preview image open in the app, there is a button in the lower left corner of the app that you can turn off. At least on Windows, maybe it's the same in the Mac software, where you can turn off the preview in the window of the control software. So you still have the controls. You can pop up and control the camera, but you can't preview it in the app. And once you turn off that preview in app, then I think it makes that. Um, <clears throat> makes the video feed available to other things like Microsoft Teams maybe maybe has that issue. It's it's an odd thing to have happen because it doesn't happen, you know, with anything else that we uh any other camera and it definitely doesn't happen with Zoom. So it may be some way that Teams is doing I it. I think yeah, um, I think what the problem is in just playing around with the app is the app the controls over the camera is zoom in, zoom out, uh, drag the image left or right to move the gimbal left or right. You know, it, it pans and tilts by just dragging the image in the preview. So whenever the mouse is over that image, it hands over control uh, to the Insta360. And so I think it may have something to do with that. And if you have it open in multiple things, it won't know when your mouse is over the image well, what's interesting control is it. so maybe it has something to do with sending the PTZ controls to the camera itself. Yeah, it's not a standard UVC control. So I mean, it has standard UVC controls. So we have seen apps that manage UVC controls can do basic management of that of that uh, of the camera, but it has a lot more tools. Um, I don't. Uh, it'd be really interesting to know. I mean, it, because I don't see any issue when it's 
when I have that opened and I'm going into Memo Live or I'm going into Zoom, I don't see any issue at all, any flickering, any any change. It seems to be, but it, to your point, teams could be doing something very specific to that to that process. Uh, go ahead, Serge. Can't hear you. I uh, can't hear you, Serge. Uh, next question. From John Nichols in Concord, California. Do you have a favorite way to create waveform videos from an audio file? DaVinci Resolve is preferred, and I'm okay with Premiere or Final Cut. Go ahead, Jesse. Unfortunately, the two I prefer are Motion and After Effects, and between those two, After Effects is just slightly better for our needs, and that's if you're doing pre-rendered uh, video files. If you want to do it in real time, check out VDMX. All right, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the, the thing is, there are so many tools out there that will take an audio waveform and display it in so many things. I think this is almost a matter of aesthetics more than it's a matter of getting it done. There are plenty of things that will do it. I, uh, in the two music videos that we did, I took a capture of literally the original uh, video board settings and used the meters as a visual element. In the second one, uh, Virtual Insanity, I did... Um, a capture of an aesthetic thing and doubled it and made that part of the visuals. What I'm saying is that there's so many options for getting real-time yeah. audio and captured that it's yeah. really not difficult. Just decide what you're doing. Good, Mitchell. Oh, well, Jesse, I agree that After Effects uh, certainly works. I know that from experience. And if you're using Premiere, you can use that as an uh, what they call an essential graphic inside of Premiere. Um, other than that, I think Premiere has a plug-in for it. I may have seen it one time or another, but yeah, it's, it's a cool Good. effect. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I use an app called Sound Visualizer, which is a, a program that takes the audio that's coming through your computer, and you can set it up to do a variety of visual, you know, from wave, just straight straight waveforms to lissajou patterns to a variety of uh, you know those uh, freaky uh, things mm -hmm. that were in the '60s to visualize sound, uh, and it works pretty well. I've used it on shows. Yeah, there's a lot of real-time visualizers. If you're looking for plugins uh, specifically for Resolve, there's one called Reactor, and Reactor will actually—it's a little bit—it's a little bit of GitHubby, <laughs> so, so it's a little little geeky. But uh, Reactor you can install into into Resolve, and it, it will do the waveform um, the way you want it to, to to do it, and you have some controls over it in that area. Um, the other one that you can do—the one a lot of us build—if you just want levels, so if, if you want a waveform, Reactor works well. If you want um, uh, levels to show what you what you can do is basically create um, basic uh, rectangles or whatever shape you want, and you can attenuate their height, um, their 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 um, y value by a certain frequency. So you can basically clamp those frequencies, and you can do that in any any app. Um, and uh, so you're connecting, and you would do that most likely in Fusion. By the way, Reactor Reactor is a Fusion plugin, not a not a plugin plugin. Um, and uh, but you can uh, in any app you can attach the volume of a certain frequency to the height. Of a of a square or, or a or a rectangle and they'll all bounce and that's how a lot of us build them and then you can warp them to go do it in a circle you can do a lot of other things that way so those are the those are kind of the more straightforward ways to to take to actually create something that is modifying something that at at full resolution um, that you're that's actually in the app next question from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin Texas is there a record player that plays thirty three forty five and seventy eight RPM records and has smart home technology at a reasonable price range. Uh, Mitchell. 
Um, <laughs> this is a cultural clash here, especially if you've got 78 involved in smart home. I'm not sure. But um, back in the old days of uh, turntables, they used to have, I think it was called a Rabco. It was a turntable that had a uh, arm that uh, just like a T that would track across the record. I think that's the only way that you could take control of the tracking of a record. Um, a standard uh, swing arm, um, I think that's going to be hard to automate. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and I'm going to say be careful doing this. A 33 RPM needle that is designed to play LPs is a very sensitive instrument. It's a very tiny little armature down there in the end of the capsule. Uh, to put a 78 RPM record, which is designed to go many times faster and has much bigger swings to it and run it through that same needle and cartridge combination may destroy it. So um, be careful. Yeah, the only one that I've... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that I've seen, I haven't used it. The only one that I've seen go by is the Love Turntable, loveturntable.com. It looks like a little spaceship that you put on top of your uh, record. I doubt it'll do 78. I think 78 is probably a, a, an edge case, but it, I think it will do uh, at least 33. Um, and then, and so those that's the, you know, that one you may want to um, take a look at. But again, it looks like a little spaceship that you put on top of it. I don't know if I'd put it on any record that I cared about, um, but it does seem to have most of the features that you're looking for as far as uh, wireless. I think it's still in pre-order. Uh, also, there's a stir it up wireless turntable. Um, and again, these are, with a lot of these, I don't know if I would start with records that I cared about. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, there is uh, one out there that does a uh, laser to uh, scan the waveforms oh, of the, uh, the turntables. That'd be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you could digitize it. To get back to the last question, you could be you could be flying like like it's through the um, the Death Star. You could be flying. You could if, if you could if it could laser manage the the cuts, then it, you could build a three D model of it, and then you'd be flying through the music. That'd be really fun. All right, Code Courtney. I, I, I expect to have that animation, Mitchell, uh, next week, uh, Courtney. And if you've got some old Edison diamond discs, like the player that's over my shoulder there. Uh, be careful because those are 80 RPMs and uh, you will destroy them if you play them on uh, conventional 78 uh, with an old 78 needle. You will destroy them. <laughs> uh, yeah, next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Ca uh, Canada. Any hockey fans in the room? What do you think about the NHL's new digitally enhanced dashboards where the physical ads on the boards are replaced in the broadcast with different graphics for each market? And how do they do it? Go ahead, Serge. How they do it, I don't know. It seems to be like uh, an ATM or a more advanced uh, device that takes control of the image. The problem is sometimes the leaking of the jersey with the edge of the image. It's getting difficult to see where the player is, where the, the board is, and where the puck is. Um, I'm not sure it was uh, production ready. They, they they went to it because obviously money was a big incentive uh, for the ads, but uh, it's the future. I, I think it's going to be better for the long run. But for now, I, I don't know if anybody else on the panel did see it beside myself. I, I haven't seen it. I mean, this technology is um, not new. Uh, this is a pretty, I mean, they've been doing it in baseball, basketball, soccer uh, and, and for quite some time. Uh, the big thing that happened when it first came out is everyone got really upset because the sponsors had paid a lot of money to the venue to make sure that they're, but here's the tricky part. They hadn't explicitly, they didn't know it when the, when the technology began. I, this, this technology has been 
in testing since the early 90s. I mean, I remember them doing the demo for us in, when I was working at Prime Sports Network. And um, the funny thing is, is and we, we knew it was the future, and they were showing us ads everywhere and all the places they could put them. But what was interesting was the original contracts never explicitly said they couldn't be digitally replaced because no one thought that you could digital, you know, no one thought of digital replacement. So they were sponsoring things. They get their logo in a certain part behind, but they're obviously paying attention to where the camera shots are. And then suddenly when all those ads got replaced by other ads, people got really upset, you know, like they were like, they spent millions of dollars on this. And and so there was a big fight in the 90s and the, and the 2000s. And, you know, it's been, you know, and, and so then what has to happen is a lot of the, um, because the problem is, is the venue's making a lot of money in that area, but the but the broadcaster is taking that money essentially away from the venue, um, you know, so that so it becomes a really complex, sticky issue from a political perspective or from a business perspective. Uh, as far as the technology, you know, what what typically happens with most of these technologies, and I actually don't know how the how hockey is doing this, but the typical way that this gets done is that you have to calibrate the cameras. So there's not you you, you know the the wide cameras. Um, generally are calibrated so that they in they're only pay, doing pan and typically the ones that have the ads replaced only are doing pan and tilt and so they're pan and tilting they can calibrate that so they know what the distortion would be and so basically they can lock pixel for pixel and they you know this is how the same technology is used for how they put the first down line and you know football and those types of things is they can they can lock those cameras and and, and make the math calculate the mathematical calculation on where all that stuff has to go the second piece is they have to do the difference key so they have to find those colors that are there it's a lot easier with um like football american football because it's green you know and but but it, you know and so um and that used to be a problem with like green outfits and so on and so forth it used to be a harder problem but now now it's gotten that you know the, the technology has gotten so good um that they can usually they as serge said there will be some bleeding for some some outfits but it's gotten really um, very, very effective. But it's basically calibrating the certain cameras that are going to do the replacement to the field, and that happens before the before the game. And um, and then they're able to um, insert those. But you'll notice that they're not doing it with everything. Although we're starting to see them do it, even with well, I think it, it can be done with other cameras now. <laughs> the, the technology keeps on progressing. Go ahead, search. I regarding that uh, the point. In, in hockey right now, it's just the main camera. It's just the main angle that's got that feature and, enabled. And that's probably and because of the, thing. the work that it takes to, to do it is probably. Yeah. A, another, thing, uh, another thing is in between language, if I watch the same game in French or in English, they will switch ads because the market are a little bit different. They use that technology too. And as you say, ha, uh, the ad partner of the local air, uh, rink I don't know if they react. I don't know if they changed their contract or they, yeah. they got some money back. But obviously, the ad does not have the same importance since now it's being replaced. Yeah, I mean, the argument is it's still important to the people that are in the you know at the arena, but but definitely much a fraction of what it was before. And so there was definitely when we when it first rolled out, there was a lot of upset. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York asks, I'm looking for a heavy-duty C-stand with wheels for lighting. Which makes and models do you all suggest? Preferably a buy-once, cray-once deal, but mid-tier options appreciated as well. Thanks. Go ahead, Mitchell. I like the Matthews. And uh, what's what's cool about the Matthews is you can build on to what you already have. For example, I have one right behind me. Um, I believe you can buy wheels that can be attached to it Go later. Ahead, so. 
Yeah, I don't. Um, Matthews, I have a lot of Matthews equipment. It's not one of the things I do. And I just happen to look up on the B&H site, uh, roller stands, which is technically what you're looking for if you want wheels on a fixed stand. These impact ones are pretty inexpensive. I've always gone with the Avengers. That The 34 is a little too big for me. I think this one, the Avenger roller stand 17, I have like three of these. They work really well. And the thing that I particularly like about them is that the whole wheel assemblies uh, is spring-loaded. You can clip it up to the top. I am a little careful. Now, a C-stand is a different thing. And actually, we have another question coming up where we'll talk about a C-stand and the leg arrangements and the springs, which can be a big deal. So if you're looking for a roller stand, search on roller stand. You'll find them. As you spend more money, you do get more stability and less pinchability and with the folding legs and things like that. Good, Courtney. As a rule, C-stands do not have wheels on them because they're used for precisely setting a flag or something, and then anybody who kicks it or bumps into it is going to move it if it has wheels on it. Uh, so you're probably not going to find many C-stands, but you can do, as uh, as Bill was saying, get a roller stand, which has a 5-8 inch spud on the top of it, and put a C-stand arm on top of it uh, if you really need wheels. But uh, most century stands don't have wheels. Yeah, I think that um, typically roller or junior stands are what you're kind of looking for in those in that range. Uh, you don't want to put you do not want to put wheels on C stands, <laughs> and uh, it's just not what they're built for. The entire assembly is not built for that. It wouldn't be safe. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that. Um, Avenger and Matthews are the two. If you're talking about buy one cry once to make those work, um, you'll find that those last the longest. I. I have a wide variety of C stands, and not all of them are Matthews or Avengers because I was because they were inexpensive because I knew I wouldn't use them very much. Um, so I have some newer uh, ones that I use for the corners of this uh, little uh, fort that I've built in my room. Um, but I knew that if I was going to use them every day, or if I was going to use them for client work, I would I would use I almost always have a Matthews or Avenger stands. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I use American Grip uh, stands. Yeah. They built my. They're good my wheeled uh, stands and they're nice because they they will actually make custom heights for you if you want to they've made mine cut down are they out of valley yeah they're out in the valley on um, their yeah. bank somewhere that's great uh next question from jonas dotel in stuttgart germany has anyone seen the left to right mode for h2r gear javier uh, the, the default mode for H2R is top to bottom, so you have the inputs on, you add a gear, you have the inputs on the top and the outputs on the bottom. They have this mode when you can switch it up and have the input, the, the inputs on the right and on the left and the outputs on the right. So your flowchart won't go like this, it will go like this. Uh, but that is a paid feature, so you can try it if you are using the, the free version. Uh, for me, it doesn't work that much. I prefer the top down, but some people prefer like to have this left to right uh, distribution. I'm really interested in that, actually. I One of the big problems I had with H2, H2R was that gear was that uh, every flow chart that I've seen in production goes left uh, goes left to right. And it was really, so if you haven't done a lot of gear wiring diagrams, the the top to bottom made sense. I'm sure it made, made more sense probably. But for all of us that have done them for the last decade, the top to bottom was like asking us to do something completely backwards from what we were used to. So I'm definitely gonna check it out because that was a big, you know, I, I would start working on stuff in, in H2R gear and then just go, Oh, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. Then I went back to OmniGravel and went left, left to right. So, so um, I'm, I, I will definitely check that out. It's a really good suggestion. No, because it was, a, it was, a, that was probably the 
the biggest reason I was having trouble um, using it was that it was going in a format that I just, my brain couldn't manage after, you know, just limited by 15 years of, or 10 or 15 years of, of uh, building these. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asked, Zoomtopia behind the scenes webinar today at 12 Eastern, 9 Pacific. Thoughts? I hope this is being archived. I have a live show to switch. I think it'll be really interesting. I think Sam is running that the, those, those shows, and I think that it'll be a great overview of, of how um, how they put that together. They, they did an incredible job of putting an enormous number of people uh, into the system, and I think learning a little bit more about how they approached it will be really interesting. Uh, next question. Joshua Minden in Madison, Wisconsin asked, I'm setting up a siphon-based Zoom ISO workflow for a virtual event. What's the best production software for cutting the show on a Mac? Budget sub $400. You know, I, I still think that for if you're going to go under $400 and you're looking for the best production software, I would still probably lean towards Mimo for that that type of thing. Um, you know, there is, uh, yeah, it's sub $400. Now, it's not sub $400 forever. It's it's 70 bucks a month or something like that. But but you could, you, you know, so I, I or $50. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but it's, it is, uh, so there is a cost to it per month. So it, it, um, it may add up to more than that over the year. But it is, on the Mac, I haven't found... I mean, it takes a little bit. So the thing about Mimo, um, and it took poor Oliver, you know, a decade to get me. <laughs> it felt like a decade <laughs> to get me to even open it up. I'd open it up and I go, the interface is so weird. I can't do this. And um, same thing we were talking about the H2R graphics. I was like, this doesn't look, this, is, this, this doesn't work at all. But as I've gotten used to it, it's actually a pretty effective interface for running these kinds of shows. For simple shows that I need to cut through and even relatively complex ones, you can put together things. And so I use Mimo when we're doing a really small show that I don't need all the other hardware and everything else that I'm doing typically. Um, and uh, it's, it's great because it's kind of a single, like when you see the Michael Krasny show that I do on Fridays, I'm using that and I'm just kind of noodling with uh, putting things together inside of that system. And so um, so anyway, so I think that it's, Mimo is probably the one that would, is probably the best on the Mac. I mean, obviously if you go to PC, you're gonna probably, vMix would probably be the solution for that. Um, next question. And I have a question. I need to run a 200-foot Ethernet cable and would like to know which cable and source and whether I need a repeater amplifier to do this. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm uh, tapping into the uh, uh, the condo's uh, main source. They've got an excellent uh, connection to the Internet, and I'm about 200 feet away. So I was just wondering, do I need a specific kind of Ethernet cable? And if so, do I need a repeater or a uh, amplifier? Yeah, go ahead, Serge. At 200 feet, you should not need any amplifier or repeater. By the way, it's not an amplifier. It's a, a switch or a hub that tag as a repeater. Um, the thing, though, is I will recommend to have a CAT6 cable. That way you will be sure to uh, get your gigabit internet without problem. And if you pass through electric uh, interference, be sure to have a shielded cable. That way you will not have problem. Yeah, and... Um we haven't had any trouble with anything under about 400 feet, <laughs> you know, when it comes to Ethernet. Go ahead, Mitchell. I was just going to say, anybody have any suggestions on sources for them? Monoprice. <laughs> like that's one, you know, like it's funny. I will not buy Monoprice um, HDMI cables anymore because I've had so many issues with them. But most of my Ethernet cables at this point are all from Monoprice, especially the longer ones. Um, the other option is just to get your. I mean, the other option is to buy a roll of Ethernet. <laughs> you know, you buy a 
thousand foot roll of ethernet and you get connectors and then you just make them exactly the length you need them rather than a 200 foot or 250 or 150. I will admit that I, I get mono price most of the time for just rent, you know, 25, 50 foot. If we do need to do something that's going to be there forever, then I'd probably get a roll and ends and I would deal with it. I do not like making ethernet cables. <laughs> I've said that before, like I hate it. Um, it's just, there's something about it that's tiddly and I just don't, I, I don't like it. So um, it's very, in, it feels very imprecise, I think is the problem for me. And so I just, I just, my brain just doesn't like it. But, um, but if I'm going to build something that has to be a certain length, I would absolutely, or a couple runs that were going to be exactly a certain length, I'm going to be stuck with it for the next, you know, 10 years or whatever, I'd probably build a custom one or have somebody do it for me. Go ahead, search. I I tend to go the other way around. If I know exactly the, the length I need, I will buy the cable that I already have the connector in it. The reason is the connector will be melt and it's more reliable on the for a few years than having uh, something crimp that will dry out and might disconnect in the long run. It's good. It's a good point. Um, the uh, one thing that you can do is definitely like Clark cables and other folks will actually you can just order a cable to length and you might even be able to do it with Monoprice. Might be a little bit more money, but monoprice is so inexpensive. But I think you get, you know, you figure out exactly what the length is. My recommendation is not to measure it, but to run, you know, get some, uh, you know, get some couplers and actually run Ethernet. Don't even run string, but run Ethernet <laughs> to that, even with couplers to the place that you're trying to go and make sure that it's just the length you want. If you're going to ask for it, and then ask for it to be five feet longer than that. And then you're usually pretty, pretty good. Um, uh, next question TJ Asher. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, asked yesterday, I noticed the teams appear to have camera controls. Is this a new feature or something unique to Windows? Has anyone used this feature? I have not seen that feature, um, but I don't use a webcam inside of Teams. So when I'm on a Teams call, of course, I have a 6K and switcher and stuff like that. So I haven't I haven't actually um, you know, had the opportunity to, to see that, but um, we'll keep our eye out for it. Uh, I don't know if it's new or not. Next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asked, Morning, guys. Our impact C-stand holding a light has a leg that is leaned forward over time, and we tried tighten it, but it's still somewhat out of alignment. Any suggestions to fix it? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, replace it with a Matthews with an adjustable leg on it. Uh, that would be the best solution. The problem is I think maybe, I'm not sure if this particular C-stand, they have the the folding legs that fold down, and they usually they usually have little cam oriented uh, cut tops, so that when they're aligned correctly, uh, they slot together and line up, and the spring holds them in their detent position. It could be that spring has lost its uh, springiness, so you may have to be able to disassemble it and stretch that spring back out again. It may return it to its tightness to keep it from uh, wobbling. But uh, putting a light on a C-stand is usually a bad idea because probably too much weight for it, unless it's an LED light. You go ahead, Bill. Uh, so it depends on the kind of C-stand and the kind of leg arrangements. One of the things that C-stands are known for is what is called a lazy leg or some adjustable leg. When you said tighten it, that's the first thing I thought of, that maybe that's the lazy leg part of your C-stand. And for some reason, it's gotten uh, loosened up over time. Typically, uh, C-stands are adjustable through a big hex nut. You can actually take all the legs off if it's a normal C-stand from a reliable manufacturer. It takes a big hex wrench, and then you uh, take the top two fixtures off, and you can literally pop those legs off. Then you can put it in a vise, 
get yourself a small sledgehammer, tamp down the collet, make sure that it's protected so you're not squishing it too much, and then just bang it back into gear. These are grip devices. They are not that delicate if they're well-made. So you can be a little aggressive with them. And if it's bent, unbend it. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like it's some, it's, it is a, a loose issue, maybe not a bent issue. Um, and uh, so I think that you either have, uh, I think you have three options. You can go buy another impact. You can go what Courtney said is buy a Matthews um, that's going to be a little bit more rugged. Or you can do a, a Google search on gas metal arc welding, otherwise known as MIG. Um, you know, so you're not going to open it and shut it again, but it will, it won't lean anymore after you weld it, weld it open. So, so anyway, that, but a MIG, MIG welder will, will fix that right up for you. Uh, next question. Next question from Art Aldrich in New York. I've embedded audio in NDI that I need to mix. What's the workflow and software on Mac to do this? I right, go ahead, Mitchell. I'll try to answer the first part of the question. I would go with a bird dog play. It's like 190 bucks. It's pretty darn cheap. And you could demux the audio that way and just take the audio output and run it in your Mac. And Bird Dog will, will take as many NDIs as you want and undo it? I don't know um, that. Yeah, so, yeah, I'd be interested to see. Uh, it depends on how many cameras that you're trying to get into a mix. Again, another, um, I bet you that Ecamm would do it as far as, ex, you know, scene NDI and then being able to send out um, David Paskin would know better than I do, but but I think it would work, and Mimo Live would probably work as well. So you could probably use those as as a way to output those out. I don't know if they do more than two channels, though. So that that'd be one thing for us to um, yeah take a look at. It's an interesting problem. Um, next question, Douglas Carmichael here. As I've been working through my Blender training, I've been using the primitive objects built into the program. What techniques are used to go beyond the primitives and model realistic objects like vehicles or buildings? Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm, I'm on, admittedly not a great model maker, but I do go to Turbo Squid quite a bit. <laughs> that's one way to model stuff is to buy them. Um, yeah, so uh, that's, that's another way. But if you're learning, if you're learning how to model, um, there's a couple key key skills that you need to understand. Um, and the and I don't the nomenclature. I don't know the Blender nomenclature, so I don't know exactly how it's going to call these things. But you know there are key things. The most basic one being a boolean operation. So you're building some primitives, but you have to cut one primitive out of another, or cut one object out of another. And so you'll do a series of those boolean operations. The real challenge with boolean operations is managing um, the edges, because if you want to if you want to build kind of a, almost everything in the well, just about everything in the world actually isn't a perfect edge. And so um, you don't want the polygons, two polygons that are orthogonal to each other to come together perfectly because then there's no highlight along that edge. And so a lot of times you're going to want to bevel that edge or you're going to want to round that edge just a little bit just to catch glints going down the side of it. And so the problem with uh, Boolean is it creates a complex object that is difficult to find those edges and then to round them. Um, so that, that becomes a little bit of a challenge. Another thing that you want to look at are using control splines. Um, back in my day, we called them C meshes inside of Form Z, but basically these control splines are, or splines, you have, you set a series of, of uh, cross sections and then you map, you, you pull them together. So you say, I'm going to take these 10 cross sections. Those might change a little bit, you know, and it's really how we used to build ships, you know, and you build these ribs, you know, so, it's, and then you say, I'm going to attach these ribs in, in order and it will simply build a model between those ribs and you can build some pretty complex 
objects with that. And then the final one that is probably the most popular modeling technique at the moment is subdivision surface modeling. So basically it turns the primitive that you have into a cage. And so then it, if you think about um, a spline, it just builds splines that, that are being driven by that cage. And so then as you start to pull polygons out of that cage, you're, you're able to build a softer thing and you can add, you can add more geometry to that cage and it will keep on tightening the solution. So many things that you see are, many things that are done for um, entertainment use are done that way. Uh, it's not precise enough typically to be used in like automotive, you know, which is much more of a spline-based um, system, in, at least in my experience, using things like Alias Studio and so on and so forth. And so that's a different process. But subdivision surface modeling is a pretty popular one. It's probably the first one that you should learn. Um, and I'm sure that if you do subdivision surface modeling for Blender, you'll, you'll find like 3,000 tutorials on, on how to do that on YouTube. And now you know why I go to TurboSquid. <laughs> it's fun though it's, it's fun you get some music going you start building models it's good um yeah go ahead courtney yeah alex covered most of it uh, extensively one thing he didn't mention is uh, extrusion which is uh the next step after adding uh, doing booleans and primitives um you can just draw a freehand uh 2d shape and then extrude it along the z-axis uh to make a 3d object out of it and that comes in pretty handy for generating fairly complex x and y uh, curved surfaces but then uh, and extruding them out in a single direction in the z-axis yeah and those tools have gotten a lot better because when you do the extrusion you can also typically round the caps so you can put little rounds along the around around the front cap and the back cap and oftentimes it will derive extra controls over the edge of that cap as well as the, the, the core of the body of the cap as well as the side so that if you want to add different colors, it's really popular for logos and, and you know, extruding type is a, is a really popular thing to do in that area. Uh, next question. Bobby Rafferty, <coughs> pardon me, from Central Florida asks, can you explain the flow of an HLS live stream? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that's a we did a second hour on that so I, I i will try to give you the most abbreviated version i can think of um essentially what happens is the flow is basically for the first thing that happens is is that you have raw video coming in um and that video is then compressed now it's compressed into a um basically first the first thing that's done is it's done with um, temporal compression so we try to find similarities between the frames and then we have spatial compression that finishes that off by finding similarities within the the actual pixels of each frame um those those uh, that temporal compression is usually brought it's usually grouped into what we call a group of pictures or GOP. So that's a that's a group of group of pictures. I always wish it should be GOF, but it's a group of frames. But anyway, group of pictures. Um, those group of pictures are typically then evenly divided into what were called segments. So a you might have, for instance, a um, group of pictures uh, that is a two second GOP that's put into a segment that's a six second segment. So it has three GOPs that are sitting inside of each one of them. Those segments are part of what, what we use for adaptive bitrate. So basically what happens is, is that we make a whole bunch of versions of this. So we say, we've got a 240, 360, 480, 540, 720, 1080p, 2160. Like there's, there, there's, and there might be multiple resolutions of all of those. So your, your ladder might be anywhere from six to 12 to many other ones, because you also may decide, oh, I want to do HDR and SDR. So then I have another part of that ladder, which is, is managing all of those. So now you have all of these streams going, or all these files, they're not streams, they're, there are lots of these little segments, and the segments are going to be distributed to uh, all those segments are made available. Basically, you stream into um, uh, usually some kind of um, 
you, you stream to an ingest point. That ingest point will send it to an origin. The origin is what kind of is able, it has all the files that are there. Th that origin distributes those out to the edge. So the edge is in a CDN. It, it makes them available. And oftentimes they're only available for a couple seconds. <laughs> like they're there. If anybody else needs them, it's going to give them to them. <laughs> but otherwise they're gone because otherwise they'd fill up. So, so basically these edge servers make those available to folks that are there. Now, how do you pick which one you need? Well, that happens in the player and the manifest. The manifest is basically a... Um, it's literally a text document that says, this is what I have available to you. This is all the streams that are available here, and you just have to ask for which one you want. The player looks at the performance of the internet for the user, and the and the player basically says, the user, it looks at how fast those those bits are coming down and says, oh, I think I can handle a 1080p or I can handle a 720p or whatever. And it make the, But the player is making that decision based on the manifest that tells it what streams are available, and it can change at, at any segment. So a lot of times what you'll see when you start is you'll see a your video generally be low resolution right at the very beginning so it's a quick start and it knows that almost everybody can see that as soon as it sees how fast those are going through the player will make a decision to change to whatever resolution it thinks it can handle at that point if it has if it struggles at that point for any reason it often will shift back down and and, and again er, er, within every segment it can make a choice to shift to a lower resolution or a higher resolution based on the performance of the network so Hopefully that's about it. That's about as fast as I can describe HLS. <laughs> anyway, it's it's and it's how you get almost all the video that you get when you see when you go to YouTube or 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 Facebook or whatever. HLS is a pretty popular piece, and that's a very simplistic version of what it how it actually works. Next question. It was also an awesome suggestion. Uh, here we go. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. If you had to create filler 3D content for an event like the famous Seattle Mariners Hydro Races and didn't have an experienced modeler on staff, where would you find quality models quickly? Could you use a service like TurboSquid? Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, when I'm doing this, I like to go to uh, CG Trader, where you have your simple searches and you've got your price range, Banana as well as licenses to check out. And banana for scale. There we go. Yeah. Um, well done. Uh, yeah. So the uh, 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 CG Trader is great. Uh, Turbo Squid is also is also very good. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a really interesting time as we go forward. Um, when I, and I, I don't know when. If if uh, the Apple products, you know, Keynote and Pages and Numbers start supporting USDZ the demand for these products is going to go through the roof. Um, what's, what's going to be interesting is because the market's so much larger, the demand of these products is going to go through the roof, but the price per product is going to go through the floor. And so, you know, if I would not want to be holding stock for, you'd think that you'd be, you'd want to hold stock for a turbo, for a turbo squid, but that could be really complicated uh, because um, the price, you know, you're not going to be able to get $150 a, a model. You're going to get $15 for 10, you know, that like that's, it's going to be clip art. Um, and so it's going to be a really interesting uh, change in the business model as we as we go forward because 3D is about to become a big deal. Next question. Todd Rains in Allen, Texas asks, StreamYard just added StreamYard on-air webinar to their product. It uses the same studio interface but allows registration, embedding, etc. Any thoughts? I don't have enough experience with it to know um, <laughs> that, that uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think that StreamYard has produced a lot of um, – 
it's produced a lot of folks that are able to do some very basic things. I think the real challenge with StreamYard is it does a lot of things really quickly out of the gate that are really good. It's just that you're now in a box. And so if you get used to doing that, it's just hard to grow to something bigger. That's what I normally see. When I see StreamYard, I feel like I can usually know, I usually know that they're using StreamYard and I know they can't do much more than what they're doing. <laughs> you know, and so you don't have any opened space. That is great for a lot of folks, especially doing corporate, doing something simple. This isn't your business. So I think StreamYard definitely provides a great service in that area. But you just have to know you're kind of going into it that you're going to be limited to some degree on what you can and can't do. Uh, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asked StreamYard had a bunch of announcements yesterday, including client-side recording and webinars. Thoughts about what they've introduced and how about a second hour? Yeah, I think I think I I gave my thoughts on what 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 they what they did. I didn't see the announcement, so I haven't seen anything new. Um, uh, I would love to have them on. So if if we have somebody out there that's there, I'd love to bring them on. Love to talk to them about it. Um, learn more about what they do. Um, so absolutely, if you know somebody there, um, we're happy to have them on. Next question. Hershey Trevetti in Daytona Beach, Florida, and here in our panel, Mitchell. Thanks for the question about the Ethernet cables. I've been doing some reading on them and wanted to know what the panel thought about Cat Eight and the others like 6E and such. Here is a supported link, and he provides one right there. Good, Mitchell. Um, I found that, and here's the one thing I've learned, is that um, if I have uh, any kind of connection to make, I don't think it really cares if it's three feet long, whether it's a six or an eight or anything in between. Um, it just becomes an issue over longer cables. So that's one of the things I've learned. But it's the wrap and the type of uh, twist that's in there that really makes the big difference. Go ahead, Jason. So um, Cat 8 differs more than Cat 7. In fact, it's just probably what you want to think of if you're not thinking of, of Cat 6. Um, here's a quick graphic to compare them and, and how they differ. Uh, suffice it to say, there's a 40x difference between Cat 6 and Cat 8, meaning f up to 40 gigabits per second. Um, that's insanely different. And... Um, understand that the the real limitation here is if you're ever going to put them in a patch panel, they are nearly impossible to terminate. So, like, just be really, really careful. I go ahead, Courtney. And you might look at getting shielded uh, Cat 6E um, or Cat 8 uh, because if you're going to be running uh, any signals through an RF hostile area in near any transmitters or near any power equipment, which is emanating a magnetic field, you probably want to to uh, get shielded uh, shielded cat five or cat six. Next question from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. How would you live stream a softball game with three iPhones to all the Restream IO channels and end up with an insanely great final version for rewatching? How would you live stream a softball game with three iPhones to all the Restream IO channels? Yeah. <laughs> Number one is I wouldn't do that because you'd end up with one viewer on every thing that's there, you know, or you're, you're massively subdividing your, your, um, I mean, that's the big issue is you're massively subdividing your audience. I, again, we're going to do it because we're testing all the different platforms. And so as we go, as we finish 2.5, we're going to start expanding how many things we're streaming out to. And that's going to be a test for us so we can compare quality and compare other things. So I want to say that we are going to do this, but I never recommend it to clients. Um, multi, you know, basically subdividing your audience with live streaming is really makes the interactivity much more complicated and, and interactivity is why you live stream, you know, so, um, you know, in my opinion, so the, uh, the three phones, 
Um, I think that the the main thing you have to figure out is how you, you those phones will you can connect them to Ethernet, so you can do a a, a um, basically a, a lightning to basically it's a lightning and then it has another lightning and a USB and then that USB get you know connected to a to an Ethernet connect cable and so then now you can run them back um, onto a network and then you could use NDI <laughs> you know on them um, you know so you could really literally run. Ethernet cable out to them, uh, put them on the network and have them using NDI to get back to uh, where they need to go. And that might be the easiest way. You could, of course, use HDMI, same thing. You could convert it to HDMI and then to SDI and then run it back to a switcher. So those are all things that are possible. I wouldn't try to do it wirelessly um, on an iPhone in a, at a baseball stadium, a baseball field. Um, that would probably pre be pretty rough. Um, so, But the, the big problem you're going to have is really that um, wide shots on live streams are not very compelling. You know, that's that, that's the real issue. Is they just, people, your, the dwell time will be very, very low. Well, people will come and they'll watch it for a little while and they'll be bored because they're really far away um, or they'll feel really far away. And even if you zoom in 3X, you know, from where you can be, if you can find places that you can get right behind, one of the places that you can do it is usually the backstop has all that fencing. You can put your phone right into that, like just behind the, just behind the, the, the fencing and you won't see the fencing but you will see the player. So figuring out a couple of cool places to put it there where you're behind the fencing so you don't get hit by a, a ball, um, you can get some some relatively good shots. So you want one there, then you'll want one wide of the of the field, and then you'll probably want one wide looking out to the field and one wide looking in. But the problem you're going to end up with is that you're not going to get a lot of close-ups. And the issue with that really is that you're not going to get a lot of close-ups, and we are so used to watching baseball, <laughs> like on on with really really good lenses and cameras and things, and so people will very quickly go, "This isn't what I'm used to." And and again, I would be surprised if you get an average view time over two minutes. Um, next question, Chris Widener, Lafayette, at Indiana asked, "Tripod desks gimmick or great idea?" There's a couple out there for Cyber Week, but 300 seems high for essentially a worktop to put on a heavy tripod. Go, Jesse. I have a hard time even calling this a gimmick. There's a reason that your desks have four legs at the far corners of the desk. It's for balance. I would not put anything on a tripod desk ever. And go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I spent a lot of time researching a good tripod to put on my desk, which is a very solid surface. I ended up with a uh, slick uh, creator pod. But the idea of a tripod desk in, is intriguing. But like Jesse just said, I'm not sure if it would be as solid. Good, Bill. For a few years, I actually carried one of these in my briefcase because I was doing a lot of traveling and I was also on deadline every month for articles. And I found that it was really easy for me to put a set of headphones on and write in airports. So I had a small folding uh, stand. And the things that I learned, number one, most tripods do not get terribly low. If you're going to use it for something like typing, make sure that the base of your laptop comes down so you're not typing up with your arms arched. And uh, the more portable it is, in my case, for that use, the more I used it. I love that thing. I still have it in there. And the next time I have to travel a lot, if I have to write when I travel, I will take it with me. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and Mitch, I think he's ta not talking about uh, tripods you put on your desk, but a desk you put on your tripod. Uh, something looks something like this. And I see these uh, used by script supervisors all the time on movie sets because they have to carry a laptop around these days and they have to move from setup to setup. So they're constantly moving their desk and has to be able to set up over the top of cables. They can't roll stuff anywhere. 
Um, so it becomes handy for that. It's adjustable in height. They can be sitting or the standing. So it does has, have its application, but stability, like we said earlier, three legs is not great for stability, especially if you're going to put it up very high. And it's going to be top heavy if you put a laptop on it. Somebody can come up and bump that thing and your laptop will then be in pieces on the floor. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Next, next question. Next question from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. Alex, you said you throw all files which will be played out by a stream deck into some software to make sure they're all in the same format. What tool does that and what are the other use cases? Uh, I use Compressor. <laughs> so, so I use Apple Compressor, mostly because I use Apple ProRes. And um, if you're using Compressor with Apple ProRes, it'll be four to five times faster than Media Encoder on the on the Mac. So, uh, and that's because it's using, you know, it's using, f fully using the M1 uh, or M2 chips along with the accelerator chips. And so it's just a lot faster than everything else um, on a Mac. So if you're going to be on a PC, Media Encoder would probably be what I would use to do the same thing. Um, but Adobe's support of Apple ProRes has been spotty in, in my experience. And so um, so I've, I've you know, it, it's been an on-again, off-again relationship. And so a lot of us just settled into compressor. It's $50 uh, without a subscription. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter. Um, and, uh, and, you can, and then you can compress all the things you want. I'll go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, and if you want uh, it to take four or five minutes, uh, the media encoder is a good suggestion. Maybe you need a cup of coffee, something like that. Next question. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace is back from Austin, Texas. Let's say you're going to make a documentary with three or four iPhones, okay? What's the best way to mount them handheld and tripod, monopod, or fixed and coordinate the cuts between them and manage sound? Ideas? Go, Jesse. Uh, one thing to consider if you are shooting on an iPhone is that the picture doesn't always keep a perfect frame rate. So if you're doing long interview takes, you'll definitely want to clap at the top and the bottom of the shot. And I would consider also figuring out a way to get clean video out from your iPhone, run it into an ATEM ISO or something similar so that you do have actual uh, frame sync between the iPhones. I go ahead, uh, Bill. Well, everything Jesse said, the other thing for me is that you're going to probably be doing post-production on this. So that the key for me is to get used to a workflow that allows you to capture on the three phones or four phones and then bring it back into post. I, I've never been very successful with live switching, although there's some systems that do that. The specific thing, though, is that in the mounts for iPhones, usually there are two different groupings of them. There are plastic ones with springs that hold the phone, and there are milled aluminum ones that usually have a thumb screw. Those milled aluminums are far more stable. If you want to go to the high end of that, Small Rig makes iPhone cages that are much better. They provide quarter 20s for you. And if you want to do this over and over again, I would go in that direction or the aluminum. I'd stay away from the plastic holders with springs in them. Go ahead, Courtney. And for handheld, you know, you can get the DJI uh, gimbal which works quite well. It's about $129 designed to hold a phone and give you, uh, you know, control over your horizon and nice smooth moves with that. And I think it can also be mounted on top of a tripod too, if you want to have that mount and use it on a stable base as well. So yeah, this is the, <laughs> this is the small rig and this is what Bill was talking about. And it is the best rig that I've seen for being able to use it actually in production. Uh, tons of quarter twenties, um, you know, it protects the camera as well. Um, you can actually, it's got mounts for the moment lenses. I don't think they say that, but it has mounts for moment lenses if you want to put them in there so you can use them for, uh, with the different pieces there. So it's a really, really well-made um, piece and I would highly recommend it. 
the thing about documentaries is, is that you're not really going to do a live cut typically. Um, so if you're doing interview, you know, it's usually a mixture of interviews, B-roll, and some coverage, but you're not really doing a multicam in the same way. You're going to have one shot that the person is looking relatively straight at the camera. Um, they might be looking off camera to an interview, or you're going to put them behind a teleprompter and do an Interatron. Um, but you're going to basically have one camera that's straight on. You typically have another camera to the side, and that's basically so you can do cutaways. <clears throat> Usually when you see a side shot, it means that you're using that other shot to cut around things that they said. <laughs> so when you see them cut, um, and then the third camera is typically a high and wide that shows the production, or it's the reverse of the interviewer. And usually a lot of it's like this. You know, sometimes they just shoot, and sometimes they just literally turn the camera around and just shoot the interviewer going like this, <laughs> you know, if they if they want to do it. That's more of the 60-minute style. Um, but those are the how you use, if you're going to have three cameras, that's kind of what you'd end up using. Um, but you're not really trying to cut those cameras. You're just trying to make sure that they're just right. Oftentimes, you want to see them while all in one place. So you have to think about how you're going to do a multi-split. Um, I definitely agree that DJI, um, I, I find their, uh, the way that they run the app, the fact that the, the, the stabilizer won't work, the DJI uh, won't work until you've registered in the app, which, you know, for a stabilizer, I find repugnant. Um, but, but at the same time, they still build the best one that's out there with the most number of features. And so they're winning so far. As soon as I find one with the same number of features, I probably use something else because I, I just can't believe that I have to register on an app to be allowed to use a, something that doesn't need. I understand it with the, with the drones, but this is like, especially a Chinese company, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> you know, like so, so anyway, so uh, don't, you know, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't land very well with me, but it is a really good one. And I've used it for many, many pickup shots, many, many places of coverage. And I haven't found one that I like better than that one. So, um, so I think that that's, you know, definitely having a stabilizer uh, would make a difference. And then it's not an iPhone or I wouldn't put my iPhone in it. But the other thing you may want for documentaries is a drone. <laughs> so, and those, and again, all roads lead to DJI. Um, that may not, we may have issues with them, but uh, they're still the, they still rule uh, the the whole system pretty pretty tightly because no one else is caught up technologically. Next question from Douglas Carmichael: If you're putting Ethernet cables on the walls of a home, would it make sense to future proof with Cat Seven or Eight? All right, go ahead, Mitchell. I would say the way to future-proof is, first of all, check the price on the CAT 7 or 8. It might be very expensive to do it in a house. Uh, but the way to future-proof it is run a fiber cable at the same time. Go, Jason. All right. Um, it's not about the cable. So if you're going to be the person using this instead of, you know, doing it for the next person who's, you know, going to be buying the house um, – then understand that the termination is the vast majority of the cost. Last time I did this for a client, I took Alex's suggestion and actually put TAC-12 everywhere um, in addition to um, the CAT-7. And um, the CAT-7 was a massive pain. If you're going to do any of this, do CAT-8. It's much easier to terminate. It was never actually officially adopted in the U.S. Go ahead, Bill. The other thing is that when I did that once with building, uh, I made a mistake and ran the cable serially. So from the hub to point A, then to point B, then to point C, all the way back. And at that point, if you're going to cut the cable at a place, you're going to need something that'll have in and outs on it in order to keep that network alive. I should have run individual runs out from the hub to everything. And then I would have had a much simpler way to deal with everything in post. Yeah. Yeah, and I would definitely go go from from a central hub, a central server room, or whatever you're going to use there, um, out to the out to the edge. Um, the uh, um, I would use cat. I mean, or Pac-12. 
to future-proof it. Like the, the hardest part is running it. So uh, if you're going to run something, you can go ahead and run, um, you know, cat. I would still probably run cat 6e to be honest, just because I don't think I would need it for more than that. If I needed more than that, I would use the fiber. Um, but uh, but but you can but you could go to a higher standard there. Um, but running TAC 12, the the cost of the cable is not very high compared to the cost of the labor to get it there. And once you get it there, unless you cut it, you will. Most of us would not outstrip a TAC 12 to every room in our lifetime. You know, as far as as far as uh, what we can move from room to room, so um, uh, some some might, but mo- most would not. <laughs> well, and a quick a quick note on that: um, it was five hundred dollars for a two million dollar building, five hundred bucks for TAC twelve. Exactly, which it, costs it's just nothing. A, you know, and and we're I'm working on um, some stuff right now, and one of the things we're talking about is dropping, you know, base some basic connectivity, so you know, Ethernet and and potentially some BNC in there, just to make it really easy. Like, oh, I just want to plug something in and get a signal on the other end. But then we're then we're looking at basically having a a um, uh, basically running the fiber, and then having that fiber terminate in something that we can just plug a box into. So essentially, you have a box that you just plug that into, and it it has breakouts of whatever you want. That's how you can utilize that that TAC uh, the TAC twelve more effectively. Um, next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asks, the Insta360 link has a flaw or bug and can't show video on the app and in Zoom at the same time. The Mac doesn't have the same issue. It works great. Is there a way to fix this? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, not that I know of, but maybe they can fix it in software later. But I think it has to do, as we mentioned earlier, is that the uh, control software over the gimbal is tied to that uh, display in the app. Uh, so that if you want to use your mouse to control the uh, uh, movement of the gimbal, um, you can minimize that control, turn off the display, minimize it, so it appears just as a little panel at the bottom of your screen. And you can still pop up controls so that you can control every aspect of the uh, camera and the gimbal um, from that control without it having displaying a picture. So you won't be able to display the picture, but if you have something else displaying the picture, like Zoom or you know, uh, teams, then you can use the little app minimized and then use the controls on the little app. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is back. YouTuber Jerry Barnacles-Berg built an HCPU server in 2017 for rendering and coding workloads. With the proliferation of cloud services, does it make sense to have such equipment as an individual? Probably, probably not. <laughs> like I think he did it because it was probably a good YouTube video. Um, but I think that uh, I, you know you probably don't need those things. A lot of times, as an individual, you have time on your side, um, and especially it, depending on what you're compressing to, there's a lot of acceleration that's available. Um, so I, I think the problem with cloud services is they still cost money. Remember that you know cloud service is just somebody else's hardware. So um, you're still paying rent on that, um, and so you're going to. Um, you know, that's the thing that starts to add up. So if you um, if you really need to do it all the time and you have a, a way for that, a revenue stream to support that, then cloud makes sense. If you're doing it on a day-to-day basis, it may, may not. Next question. Next question from Stefan Fischer at Würzburg, Germany. There are lots of bad boys out there. How do panelists protect their networks and workstations from viruses and other risks? And I... I <laughs> Courtney will hate this one, but uh, you know, buy Mac. You know, so so the um, <laughs> so like that that's that's step one. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll have to go pretty quickly here, Javier. 
my quickest uh, tip would be common sense. Like most, uh, the most uh, time that I've got bitten by something is when you do something you're not supposed to do. So treat the internet like the regular street. Like you wouldn't open your door for anyone. Don't open emails you don't know. You don't go to sites you don't know. So common sense. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Regardless of how tempting the email seems, like you know, your invoice for $999 is yeah, processed right. through Amazon. Never click on anything in an yeah. email uh, unless you specifically uh, ask someone to send you something and it's from that person you asked them to send it to you. Otherwise, write in the garbage if it's got an attachment. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Jason. Get and use a password manager. Do a clean load of whatever OS you have the minute you get the computer. And um, last but not least, once you have your clean load, especially with Windows, strip it to the bare metal. Uninstall absolutely everything. Yeah, and and you just want to you know proper firewall management. You do want a router that's going to do that. <laughs> you know you, you want to have control over the firewall. You want to have some visibility over that firewall. So those are other things that you want to Mac or PC. Uh, I was a little flippant about that earlier. Uh, Macs just aren't big targets. So um, and the way that the system works is not really built to be centrally uh, managed, and so it tends to be a little bit more robust in that area, or we just don't see very much of it. Um, but definitely with PCs, you have to have a really tight management of your of your firewall. And um, and as everybody said, don't click on anything. You don't know. Um, last question for the first hour. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany is here again. Fluid heads are made for specific weights. When it says it's usable up to eight kilograms, what is the weight you put upon this head? Eight kilograms or less as a maximum? You can usually safely put up to eight kilograms on a, on a head. Um, when you start putting them over that, you're starting to put pressure on the fluid head. And what happens is you can get away with a little bit of that if you keep it perfectly balanced um, because it's not putting a lot of pressure on it. But as you lean it forward or lean it back, you're putting pressure on that on that fluid head. And over time, that fluid head will cease to work well and then it'll start to bleed. It'll literally bleed the fluid. Not that I've ever done this, but it'll literally bleed the fluid out of the head. So um, I wouldn't recommend uh, over over uh, weighting your, your head. Uh, definitely pay close attention to not going over that. You can go to the max safely, but I wouldn't go over it. All right. We're so excited. So excited for the second hour. <laughs> we have uh, Paul Isaacs. Paul Isaacs is the Director of Product Management and Design at Sound Devices. And we also have Gary Trenda, who is the RF Applications Engineer. And I assume that what we're talking about is is probably Gary's baby <laughs> or, or both of theirs uh, as far as, uh, and this is uh, the new uh, wireless uh, tra uh, receiver that that uh, Sound Devices um, has, has released. And I'm, I'm going to let... Uh, Paul kick it off and describe a little bit about uh, how this receiver works. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, thanks for having us, Alex. It's always great to be here. And hello to everybody this morning. Good to see you all. Yeah. Um, where do I start? I'm not going to give you any preamble. Let's just get straight into the... Oh, a little preamble is fine. We can do a little preamble. I'm excited uh, about it. How, how did you guys come up? So this, this all comes from the purchase of Audio Limited, right? Well, that's where it all started. Yeah. About yeah. what, five, six years ago now, you'll know that we bought Audio Limited, a, a really renowned um, wireless company, an English company. And, uh, you know, it was really a match made in heaven. The, the engineers, engineering team there and the people involved there, we really got on with well. And it just seemed like the perfect collaboration. So after many talks, we, we decided to buy Audio Limited. And the first product that we um, uh, brought out was the A10 transmitter and the A10 dual um, 
super slot receiver, which uh, which uh, proved to be a really good start for us in the wireless business, digital uh, modulation. But we always knew that was um, a first step, and we knew also that we were a long, quite a long way behind the competition. Um, so really, over the last five years, now that really the, the, the everything's now been consolidated under the Sound Devices brand, the engineering, everything's within the the design and the uh, engineering, the programming, the hardware. Everything is now under the Sound Devices umbrella, and uh, we started to make program. We had a long term plan, and that long term plan was what we call the A twenty platform. Actually, it's got it's got a much more fancy name now. You may have seen the word Astral um banded around so this is like the new name for our a20 platform which is really the name of an eco a wireless ecosystem so you're going to see the first products in that astral range are the a20 mini transmitter this a20 nexus multi-channel receiver the a20 rx dual receiver which we released about six months ago these are the start of that platform and all part of the astral platform you're going to be seeing a lot more product come under this banner um so you know we had this long-term vision that you know we knew that we needed to really sort of jump our game in terms of what we're technically capable of and we wanted to not just be another i am wireless manufacturer we want we looked at all the issues in the industry and thought well, where do we want to be what would we like to achieve ideally and part of that was um, SpectraBand, which I believe you may all be familiar with. We sort of released the SpectraBand technology with the A20RX dual receiver uh, about six months ago. And what that really means is a very wide tuning range. So we have a 470 megahertz to 1525 megahertz tuning range, which is the widest in the industry. So that is something that we wanted. And, and for, for, our, for our listeners, why does the wide tuning range make such a big difference? Well, what it means is, <laughs> the bottom line is, you're always going to be able to find a frequency no matter where you are in the world. It also means that you don't need multiple SKUs of receiver and transmitter because the one model of transmitter, in this case, the A20 mini transmitter and the A20RX and now the A20 Nexus um, can operate over the entire band. Um, if you and is that, that some, in some way future-proof you also from any changes in the FCC or, you know, other things like there's a lot of us end up and have a lot of receivers and we have a lot of transmitters and receivers we can't use. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gary can go more into that aspect of, you know, he loves anything to do with the FCC. So comment, Gary. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. Well, Not that I'm because, bitter. <laughs> no, I, I love regulatory uh, talks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because we're able to do 470 to 1525, as Paul said, we're able to have settings for any country that you're in. And if the regulatory uh, environment changes, we can, with a firmware update, change the tuning range of the receiver or the transmitter. And so, as you know, we've had DTV repack in the United States, rather than asking someone to buy a new uh, wireless transmitter receiver set, we could just make a software change and allow you to tune to those uh, different frequency bands. That's fantastic. Yeah. So moving on, you know, so spectral band is one part of it. Another part of the technology um, that we wanted to achieve was something called gain forward, um, which has now been out for over a year. And what that means is that um, uh, 
essentially there's no more need to control the gain on the transmitter. Right. Um, we, we've designed a front end, an audio front end on the transmitter that can essentially far exceed the dynamic range of what a lav mic can can offer, the best lav mic can offer. So we essentially just transmit the entire dynamic range from the transmitter to the receiver and then straight into the recorder. Um, and that really negates the need now to uh, have to worry about transmitter gain, which is always a stress on set when you're having to be concerned about whether talent is going to shout or whisper. You don't have to worry about it. You can just adjust the trim on your mixer now, um, just like you would a hard-wired mic. So that was another important part of that. and because in that way you're you're yeah you're really and you're able to now control the what whatever's being sent or whatever's being used you're able to control that from the receiver so it's so you're not even controlling it it's just sending all of that data to the receiver is that is that and the receiver is just that's correct picking out and what like it wants if, to hand to the what it wants to output right so and then you then you can connect your receiver outputs digitally to whatever mixer you happen to be using whether it's via Dante AES or what have you and then just use the trim control there. Um, by virtue of the fact that the the preamps on the on the transmitter are so low noise and such uh, as have such a high amount of headroom, it's impossible to clip the transmitter itself or under. So you would clip uh, you if you clip something, you would clip the lav. Itself, the lav, exactly. Right? Which would be difficult. <laughs> like what's the what's the typical dynamic range of the lav? Mm, about 115 max, 115, 115 dB of right. range on a, on a lav, um, and the dynamic range of the transmitter is over 130 dB. Right, that makes sense. So you have, so you're able to, you're not worried about that anymore. You have, you're able to now have a wide spectrum. So mm-hmm. what's the, how's the new device work? How does it talk to the? Uh, right. So you know, let's get to um, the A20 Nexus now, and I'm going to try and sum it up in one sentence, but. Can you imagine a whole rack's worth of wireless, 16 channels of wireless with full um, 16 channel support, true diversity with Dante IO, full backlink control from the receiver to all your transmitters um, in a half U, a half rack, (laughs) one U. I just did a show that had only eight. And it was the rack was um, just the audio, uh, you know, processing was probably I don't know eight or ten U of all the things that we had connected to that. So it was, uh, and that was relatively compact you know, for for what we were doing. And that then that uh, with that and that was an Axiant system, right? So this is what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to find. We wanted to see how far we could push the envelope. And uh, sixteen channels in a half rack, one U box. Um, it's actually the base unit is eight channels, but it can be upgraded to 16 channels. We have a plus four plugin, so you can upgrade from eight to 12 and then to 16. We have a 2.4 gigahertz um, uh, proprietary backlink control, which we call Nextlink, um, which the main design premise there was that the range of that backlink needed to be at, at least twice as good as the forward link. And should be able to operate in. And when you say extremely... backlink and forward link, what you're talking about is that be able to control to send the yeah. the controls so, and information out has to be twice as far as being able to actually send audio. Exactly. So your wireless audio transmission is going to drop out long before the control of the transmitter will drop out. So if you're finding, for instance, one example is 
you're not you're starting to get dropouts on the audio you can then go okay well let's crank up the uh, rf power a little bit and you can do it all remotely and then hopefully remedy that situation that's just one example of a thousand different things you can do um, so we can control every element of the transmitter via this 2.4 gigahertz backlink control but the other apart from range it was very important that that range could still you could still get that range in a very congested 2.4 gigahertz environment and we all know that every production environment is just full of bluetooth and wi-fi and notorious for causing problems so we've developed our own protocol which is extremely resilient to that congestion and the main physics behind that because it almost sounds like magic is well it's a number of things but <clears throat> primarily there's a law of physics with rf that if you have a much lower data rate it's like inversely proportional to range you get more range right lower data rate the more range and because we're only doing control and we don't need super high late uh, super low latency control we can have you know on and off commands mute commands frequency change commands they can all happen at very low data rate which enables us to get this phenomenal range um gary last week you went and did some tests with that whole next link in uh the yeah. local baseball stadium tell, tell them about that sure oh we we just took it to a, a sports arena here uh and tested it out to where we could we were we were set up on an upper level in a it's a typical like basketball arena and we could walk around the concourses uh on the lower levels and still have control throughout the entire facility with this 2.4 gig data link for exactly the, the reason you through said through the concrete and through the rebar <laughs> yeah through <laughs> the concrete and rebar uh yeah. and long after we had lost audio and it is because the, the data rate is lower we've got our proprietary frequency hopping scheme so we're reducing collisions and we're also able to resend the commands if you know and and get acknowledgments back and so if you've got a few seconds for a power command that allows you a tremendous number of retries of data either direction and so we've got that good bi-directional data link that's been very robust for us in all of our testing and as we're saying it, it exceeds the forward link by at least 2x the other thing to note there is actually the backlink the next link is actually true diversity as well it's not just the wireless audio forward link which is true diversity across and can you explain when you say true diversity can you for our listeners can you um can you explain what true diversity means go on gary sure uh yeah so what we mean is that we've got two radios that are receiving the signal so in the case of the audio link coming from the body pack transmitter back to your receiver you're coming in with your antenna and you've got an a and a b antenna input that's going through some filtering some amplification and ultimately that digital data stream is getting decoded. And so we're decoding that digital data stream two different times, once on the A and once on the B antenna. And we're actually looking at the audio and making a comparison with the audio and deciding at that point, which antenna we like better for audio. And we mm -hmm. can do that on a, almost like a bit by bit level because we're decoding both. And one of the, you know, the, the real magic behind this Nexus system is that all 16 channels benefit from this true diversity. Now, if you were to do this with a traditional design with any other system that's currently on the market, you would essentially need 32, 32 paths because you're talking about two independent receiver channels per, per channel, essentially. And 
we do the magic inside an FPGA and where it basically looks at this whole slab of RF is able to decode, demodulate all 16 channels um, benefiting from that true diversity. So that's where the magic now, comes from. I know I, I, a little bit of backstory here is that I, um, is that uh, when the, the announcement went out, I, I really pressured Paul, Paul, and and Gary to come on today. Yeah, like, thanks, to thanks, talk. Alex. Not yeah, right. Yeah. No. It was like, Robin can you come on tomorrow? You know, like and and uh, and um, so, uh, do you? Ha- are you able? I don't know how set up you are. Are you able to show us the little or the little box? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can show you lots yeah, of uh, things it. in real time here. Uh, we could either do it from Gary's setup, which is probably preferable. But we'll, right, there we go. We'll go in and out here. Um, so. Why don't we talk our way through the back panel first, right? Because that yeah. gives an idea of what, you know, the capability that beyond what we've spoken about already. I, I just want to, be, before we start going into that, is there were three applications we were really looking at. We wanted to make this a very diverse product that can handle many applications, not just production sound, but broadcast uh, live events, all sorts of things. So we've designed it because it's small enough that it can go in a bag. If you're a production sound mixer, you can right. mount it on top of your mixer in a bag. Obviously, that's our primary industry with sound devices up till now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually do have an accessory as well that if you are an eight series mixer recorder user, we have a, like a quick dock accessory that allows you to mount the A20 Nexus directly on top of the eight series and it connects via the expansion port on the top. So all 16 channels of audio pass from the Nexus down to the eight series. The power to the Nexus is all provided by the eight series itself. Uh, time code is also passed back to the Nexus. And we'll talk more about time code later because you might think, why do I need time code on a receiver? But there's some reasons for that. Um, so it makes it a really neat cableless solution for 16 channels all down the back. So that was one application. The other application is yes, it can quite happily sit on a cart as well. Um, and you can, by virtue of the fact that it's got Dante IO, you know, can very easily rig it up on a cart, 16 channels. But uh, the other key thing that we uh, wanted to achieve um, was the ability to operate the Nexus remotely from a long distance. Um, so there is like um, Ethernet here. We have power over Ethernet. We have Dante audio over IP and also the ability to control over IP. And that control is, is through a web page? Uh, I think that was Siri cutting in. Sorry. Okay, yeah, no problem. Can you hear me, by the way? We can hear you just fine. Okay. Um, so, and what is the control the idea look like is that as far as that goes? Yeah. I can actually quickly, um, I can quickly share my screen actually here and show you what that, there's a built-in web, web app, web server built into Nexus. So, um, I can, uh, let's see, just move this out of the way. It's the main screen. So this is yeah. a web page. This is not some, you know, standalone. It, it can run on yeah. um, an any iPad. Browser. It can run on a browser. It's any, any browser. It's, you're going to be able to open it. So you have, and, and you pretty much have full control over the re- receiver at this point. And is there anything yeah. that you have to go to the receiver for? So, no, you don't have to touch the front panel of the, of the Nexus right. at all. 
and that, as I said, could be run remotely and you can sort of go, you can get an overview here of all your channels mm-hmm. um, and go into any channel you want and, and see the RF history, the queue data, the battery remaining, you can change frequency, all of this sort of stuff from here. Um, and you've even got your real-time spectrum analyzer here as well. So you can see exactly the lay of the land in terms of the RF um, uh, environment. Right. Um, and you can even from that from that uh, spectrum analyzer, you can export um, CSV files and PNG files. So if you want to record the characteristics of the location, you can. And that and, reference, right? And that and that's not just the looking at the mics; it's looking at all the the, the entire spectrum to show you what yeah. else might be floating around there. So right. those spikes are the mics that you have there. I and mean, how do you work around those those uh, spectral issues? <laughs> well, you know, if you did spot interference, you can actually. Sc- move your cursor here. I'm getting into the weeds here, but you can move around here and go, okay, there's noise around here. Let's find a cleaner frequency. Let's maybe do that and assign that to a different channel. So then you move channel, um, you know, you move your channels around that way. And I don't know if I'm actually on here, but uh, yes, I can say assign that to channel one. And I don't know if I'm actually hooked up here. And move, and move things around. But um, the idea, I mean, Gary can show you that because I think his, his unit's more set up for the real-time show of this. But um, the, the point I wanted to make is that that's the third application to be able to run the um, Nexus remotely. And you right. do have power over Ethernet. You have the Dante audio and the control. So you've And what's that. amazing is, I mean, just even the simple things, I mean, you're seeing the, the quality of the connection, you're seeing the signal, you're seeing the battery Correct. life. Of all Correct. the things that are there, and, and and that can be anybody. Again, it's not something that we have to. Uh, yeah, anybody can log in and see it, and and theoretically over a VPN, I can have that control be coming from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and obviously with the RTSA, you can switch it from tuning band to tuning band. So this, um, and we'll have Gary talk more about this, but the this wide tuning range of one gigahertz, um, we essentially divvy up into what we call tuning bands of which the typical width is 24 megahertz. And each of these tuning bands is filtered very, very tightly. We've almost got like brick wall filters at either mm-hmm. side of that tuning band. So it makes it extremely immune. Each band is extremely immune to out-of-band interference. Gary, do you want to talk a bit more about that? If he's around. Yeah, sorry, I just had to unmute. Uh, yeah, ex- you're, that's exactly right. And I'll I can uh, throw a little slide up here that shows you an example. So we we talk a lot about soft filters, and so what we're using is these soft filters. It's a surface acoustic wave filter, and so the the first filter that you'll see uh, at, right after the antenna input is a soft filter, and, and those are between twenty four and thirty six meg for a twenty nexus. Uh, and then we have an additional 24 meg soft filter uh, once we've decided on the tuning band. And so that's what I like to think about that is like, that's the RF that you're capturing. And so that's what Paul was showing you with that real-time spectrum analyzer view. Um, and when Paul says that there's a steep roll-off, this is a quick graph that I did of a soft filter. The yellow trace is the soft filters that we're using. The green and the blue traces are more traditional RF filters made out of inductors and capacitors. And so they're both good filters, but there's just a difference in rejection when you get out of band. And so we're 
you know, in fact, this green one is set up to the exact same tuning band as the the yellow. So the, the yellow is a soft filter of a 24 meg wide and the green is a traditional filter that's 24 meg wide. And so you just see the difference in out of band rejection. And so you'll he hear us talking about that uh, in relation to uh, IFBs, camera hops, two-way radios, digital television stations, any of this unwanted interference, we're helping to filter this out. And so that's why we feel like the, the tuning band um, workflow is going to be really helpful to people who are operating in congested RF environments. And I, can, right. yeah, and I can so, show you the, uh, you're asking about the live changing of frequencies. So if you can see my screen set up here, I've got right now, I've got two microphones that are turned off. And so you can see from here, if I went to my home screen, I say, okay, let's take microphone number one and let's go ahead and power that on. And so you see a little spinning halo around the on button as it sends the and on And that's command. waiting for confirmation. Yeah. And so you're going to get confirmation back from the transmitter once it turns on. Of course, you'll start to see the RSSI come up. Those blue bars is your signal strength indication. The purple dots are your Q meter, your quality meter. And then you've got a timeline here and I can set the timeline for the quality or the RSSI. I like to use the quality meter because that's a good indication of signal to noise. Uh, so it's telling me that right. I've got the signal that I want, but I don't have any unwanted interference underneath it. Maybe because you could have a RSSI level that's high, uh, but you have an unwanted interference that's causing right. you to have some drops in audio, right? So we'll and, go back to our... Yeah. And notice while you're there on that screen, you had sure. the... You had the um, also the backlink RSSI meter at the top left there. That gives you an indication of your the quality of your signal coming back. Yeah, up top, it's telling me I've got a lithium-ion battery in there, that it's 88%. And then these signal bars here with the little white arrow are the, the we're calling it next link, uh, is our, our data link between the A20 mini transmitter and the A20 Nexus receiver. Right. So... And then I'll jump back into the RTSA here and show you, here's my two carriers that I've got set up. And so now if for some reason I was experiencing interference on, let's say channel two, I could go in here like what Paul did and say, I pick a different frequency and I can hit assign. And what you'll see happen is, what do, what do you want to assign? Well, I want to change receiver two. Because of that link, it just turn, turns it off on the one channel, turns back on on the other. You're going to drop audio for a second as it retunes. But the A20 mini transmitter just sort of follows along with the receiver settings that I'm changing via the web interface. That's amazing. So yeah, imagine doing that from anywhere in the world. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that, I think that becomes important because the idea that you could do that from anywhere in the world, a lot of times what we like to do is have some of our technicians offsite that are paying attention to all these things because when you're on site, there's a lot of other things you're dealing with. And so having somebody else be able to just step in and look at things on a mixer, on a uh, receiver, on those types of things is a big, it's a big deal. Yeah, we've yeah, talked yeah. to some people in a corporate environment thinking about, you know, a help desk sort of application. If you had these types of receivers in your meeting rooms, you could, from your help desk, just you know, remote yeah. into whichever meeting room they're having trouble with, look at the RF environment, retune if necessary. Right. Gary, I wonder if it's you're set up to demonstrate this as well, whereby you can switch tuning bands and um, basically migrate your transmitters to a new tuning band very quickly as well. And in fact, you can go back and forth between tuning bands. So where that might be useful is before a, a production starts, you could actually configure two separate tuning bands, one as a redundant backup should 
your primary tuning band with the eight or 16 frequencies that you've allocated there and mapped there, should there be some unexpected interference, then you could switch to another tuning band where you've mapped those same transmitters to different frequencies. And within a second, have everything remapped to a totally new space in the spectrum. Um, and you can pre-configure that before you start. And it just gives you that confidence should anything unpredictable happen. I don't sure. know if you're in setup to uh, that Yeah, why don't I switch back over here to uh, just the live demo of my screen. You can see my screen okay. Um, yeah, we can see it great. So if I were to go into my real-time spectrum analyzer here, and you can see we can pop that up on the the fourth screen so as you're watching your receivers you can also see the spectrum on your display here which i like i like that a lot as we're monitoring things but bringing that over i can tap on it to expand the spectrum all the way across the screen and you're going to see the same spectrum analyzer that we saw on the web interface uh, from here i can go to this our scan mode which it's going to tell me it's going to stop audio because if you're getting outside of the tuning band, obviously you're not able to decode audio simultaneously. And we, I guess we're kind of jumping in the middle right. of this, but I should mention that we're looking at the spectrum of our 24 meg tuning band while we're decoding all the audio from up to 16 transmitters in the same range. Right. So I'm going to stop audio and now you're going to see a much wider tuning range on there. In this case, I've got, it goes from 470 to 616 megahertz that's a, probably a little small for you to see but that's in yellow text on the top corners of the screen and so if i were to move my blue cursor and say okay let's pick a tuning band up here and just tap on the encoder wheel and it'll bring me into that tuning band now within this tuning band i can use the same workflow where i'm going to tap here and just assign a frequency and say that's going to go to receiver one and you'll see receiver one turn on that frequency. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then I can tap here and then I can assign this to receiver two. And obviously if you've right. got a more complicated RF environment, you may be wanting to use some intermod coordination software or something to do high channel counts. But for the low channel counts we're using for the demo, we're just sort of randomly picking a couple frequencies to show you how quick it is to tune it. But now that I've been in this tuning band, I've got frequencies here. As Paul said, if I, for some reason, needed to go back, maybe I'm moving between locations. I can, of course, save settings and recall settings with the Nexus. But if you're doing this kind of a fast-paced environment, say, oh, I maybe I didn't want to change the tuning band. I just want to go back. I can go back here. And then I can very quickly, I can select the tuning band I was in before. And, and go back there and it, you can see it immediately remembered what frequencies I was in in this tuning band and retuned my mics along with it so I can as long as I programmed frequencies within those tuning bands I can move between them and it, again with that next link control the microphone transmitters just follow along with the receiver as I'm moving between tuning bands that's amazing we have a, a ton of questions uh sure <laughs> stacking up so uh, this is this is incredible is there anything else last things you want to show before we jump into the questions Sure. I mean, let me just run through the back panel real quick. Like Paul said, I've got a second Nexus here set up on top of the one that I'm doing the demo on. So um, you can see the there's antenna inputs on the front and there's also antenna inputs here on the rear, uh, BNC for both. Uh, you can select front or rear antenna input. So depending on if you're in like a bag setup or maybe a rack setup. Um, if you want to use a cascade option, you can do that too. You can come in the front and go out the rear. You can enable that. Uh, both sets of antennas uh, support bias power. So if you have a antenna that needs bias power for like say a filter amplifier, 
If you're using a smart antenna like a WYSIWYG LFA or BFA, we also support that protocol. So you can control the smart antennas from this device. So you can change filters and change gain settings on your antenna from the uh, Nexus. Also on the back panel here, we talked a little bit about, about the SFP or the network options on there. So the SFP port is something you could plug in. Uh, let's see, something like this, which is just a, a small uh, fiber optic network adapter. So if you need to connect this over fiber, you could. Uh, we've also got your traditional RJ45 copper adapters in there. The first one uh, accepts PoE+. Plus. So PoE+, Plus will allow you to power this unit remotely. Uh, it has to be PoE+, Plus, so that's uh, 30 watt power. The unit max draws about 24 watts of power. Uh, in addition, we've got these DB25 connectors. The DB25 connectors are the AES59 standard, so kind of the old Tascam D88. Eight channels of analog out or eight channels of AES digital out. It's got the antenna connections here and here for the Nextlink antennas. I don't have those connected right now, but that's your 2.4 gig Nextlink. And it's, it's worth be- noting, um, Gary, there that though we do have an optional bracket assembly, which brings out those yeah. 2.4 gig SMA connectors to the you front. You can see that on the unit below. Like I have the 2.4 gig connectors uh, right on the front panel with the bracket. So, yeah, 2.4 gig antenna. Uh, the BNC in the middle is your timecode input. So we can jam timecode to the A20 mini transmitters because we're able to locally record on an A20 mini transmitter. Uh, so that allows you to connect timecode. It sends the timecode wirelessly over the next link and jams to the transmitter. We've got yeah, our redundant. Um, and you can that- can you do that all over the world? You can record only in the U.S. and you can transmit only in the U.S. Uh, outside of the U.S., you can record and transmit simultaneously. Right. Uh, and then the DC power be, uh, inputs. Sorry, oh, sorry Gary, on, yeah. on, the, on the time code aspect. So when the Nexus is mounted on an 8 series, it automatically uh, uh, sees the time code from the 8 series itself. And you'll get a nice big display. I have the time code. If you're not on mounted on an eight series, the, the BNC input is the time code that's actually uh, jammed to all the transmitters, and it's constantly uh, basically monitoring the the sync of those transmitters. So as soon as you've paired transmitters, they will all. As soon as you're in record mode, they will all jam immediately. I shouldn't use the word jam. That's freak out any RF engineers. They, they'll sync out the sync out the transmitters almost immediately within a few seconds, and we're constantly monitoring the uh, the drift there of each of those transmitters over the next link. And uh, so it's actually a full zero drift system over however long. That's great. And okay. then you have power power next to that. Yeah, power next to it. It's uh, two DC power inputs, TA4, similar to what we use on our 8-series mixer recorders. Uh, It's highest voltage takes precedence, so you can have a redundant power setup if you want. We have these uh, 4-pin Hiroshi jacks on there for DC power out. Uh, If you need to power external devices, uh, one example I've given people that is if you wanted to set this up remotely and maybe you had an IFB transmitter that you wanted to feed, you could route Dante Audio to the Nexus uh, from that network connection you could bring it out the analog output into an IFB transmitter and then power your IFB transmitter from that uh, four pin DC jack. That's We've great. got a USB-A port on here, which is primarily just used for uh, firmware updates and also for the initial pairing of the transmitter and the receiver. The way that the Nextlink works is they need to pair up the transmitter and the receiver and you pair up one A20 mini transmitter with one next A20 Nexus receiver. And so that initial pairing is done with a USB-A to USB-C cable. 
And that's about it for the back panel. That's great. That's great. Um, uh, let's let's jump into some of the questions. Uh, Mitch, what do we got? First one from Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay Area. An experienced guest would say that most sound mixers will leave any receiver in a bag cart most of the time. So then why not use the small form plug-in for RF rather than deploying the receiver closer to the action? We have 100 millimeter max with a category Dante. And of course, this was asked earlier. I think that SFP uh, kind of solves that <laughs> that that uh, that challenge by being able to uh, move this. So that's what that SFP really is useful for, right? Is that I can, if you want to put this next to the, uh, you know, like at a stage or or somewhere that's a long distance away, you can have the wireless then transmitted from there. Is that is that right? Is that the primary use for the SFP? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you have Dante audio plus control over fiber, and so that can go whatever distance really you require. And the um, power can be low. If you're connecting with fiber, then the power can be done locally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one question. thing to uh, yeah, one thing to note on the uh, on the Ethernet configuration: each of those three uh, network ports, the SFP and the two RG45s, can be set set to control only, Dante only, or all control. So if you want to segregate your control network from your Dante network, you can. Right. Absolutely. Uh, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, could you see the A20 range used for concerts and live events, not just location work? I think the one challenge would be, of course, is it's primarily working with uh, transmitters that are designed for labs, right? I mean, that's the, you know, at the, at the moment or or shotguns. So it might, Yeah, maybe. exactly. At the moment, we've got transmitters that'll do 48 volt phantom power. So you could plug in a boom mic or a live sound environment. You could plug in a test and measurement mic. Uh, and then the A20 Mini, of course, you know, it was great for putting on talent with labs or a headset right. mic if in that case. But in a concert environment, if you're looking for a handheld, that's something that we currently don't offer. Yeah. Um, next question. Mickey Makachor from Manila, Philippines. For multi-zone RF applications such as house-based or studio-based reality shows, can the front and rear RF inputs be configured for zone diversity? Not exactly. Uh, you could plug in antennas to the front and antennas to the rear, and you could manually switch between them. So if you wanted to cover a larger area with two sets of antennas, you can do that, but you would have to manually switch between them. Uh, otherwise, you would put a zoned antenna distribution system in front of this receiver to allow for multiple zones beyond that. Next question. Jesse Mills from San Francisco Bay Area. Which 2.54 gigahertz antennas does sound devices recommend for remote control? Uh, it comes with a set of 2.4 gigahertz antennas that well, we showed on there. It's just kind of a, a, a simple dipole antenna. Uh, but like we said, the range on that is is, is really very good. And so we, we're not recommending any changes to, to that. We've just got a kit to remote mount that to wherever you need to remote it. Next question. David Brady, New York, New York. In a city as saturated as Manhattan, what are some of the bigger challenges? Yeah, New York City, you've probably only got one or two open DTV channels that are, you know, very like low level RF there. So that each of the in the US DTV channels are six megahertz. So you're trying to fit your microphones in a six meg chunk of, of spectrum. And so that's one of the reasons why those soft filters are going to be an advantage with an A20 system. We're trying to filter out all the other interference and really just narrow down on that you know, six or 12 megahertz of the spectrum that you've yeah, got clean the, to operate in. And the, and the fact that, you know, there's that real-time, really high-quality RTSA built in 
you can very quickly visualize where your space is and, and how and sort of zoom into that area and place your transmitters there. So yeah, it's a very quick system. Next question. Mickey McIntyre is back again. Any plans on developing control integration with other non-SD hardware, such as Gain Forward and RF, and power telemetry on Yamaha consoles? <laughs> well, you've I mean, already got you've already got the benefits of the Gain Forward with your Yamaha consoles. You literally just go Dante directly in, and you can then just um, effectively get the uh, all the advantages of Gain Forward there by just you know you, you adjust the trim on your mixer. Um, in terms of control directly from your uh, mixer. Uh, we don't support that. Um, in theory, it could be done if there was a will <laughs> to do that. But um, I'm not sure whether that's a path we really need to go down now with this web app, web app control and the versatility of that system to exist on any browser. I had one audio mixer tell me he was just going to put the Nexus on his meter bridge and use it from there. But yeah, <laughs> I understand that some other manufacturers do integrate uh, control of the receiver from a mixing console and obviously with us being part of the audio tonics group that's something we could consider for yeah. the future <laughs> next question chris widener from lafayette indiana asks with the unique way you've handled rf do you recommend just sticking with high gain omni antennas or go directional i think it depends a lot on your rf environment um we're shipping two of those a20 monarch antennas with the a20 nexus so we're giving you a wideband omni antenna that covers that full 470 to 1525 uh, range. Uh, outside of that, if you've got an application where you know your transmitter is always going to be in a defined area where a, a directional antenna could be an advantage, then definitely do that. Um, I tend to recommend passive antennas to people first before they go to uh, amplified antennas just because of the the filtering that's required before the amplifier to make that as reliable as the, the spectroband front end is on the A20 Nexus. So some applications you'll find a directional antenna is helpful, but start out with the Omni, see if you've got good RF gain and then kind of go from there. Next question. Mickey Makachore is back. When operating multiple Nexus transmitters or receivers paired to the same transmitters, like for shows with multiple location mixers, how do the transmitters work with the NextLink controls? Which mixer controls gain forward? Yeah, so right now you're going to have to decide which Nexus has that NextLink connection to the A20 mini transmitter. Uh, and so it's only going to be one of them if you had multiple Nexus uh, uh, receivers. But that's something we're looking at in the future to see if we can make that a little uh, more streamlined for people doing reality events. We, I should say that the next link works simultaneously with a Bluetooth connection. So you can have your A20 mini connected via Bluetooth to an app on your smartphone or tablet. We've got an iOS and Android uh, app called A20 remote. And so if you had somebody that wanted to be able to control the transmitter, you could use the A20 remote app and you could still maintain that next link connection to the receiver. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. Since the unit has Dante built in, Ethernet control built in, power over Ethernet built, uh, power built in, this seems like the perfect stage setup for theater. Have you tested this use case? Yeah, we have. I mean, I think there's going to be people in theater who want to use this uh, because you can put it just side stage or very close to talent, wherever that might be, and then route it, like you said, Dante and control to wherever that needs to be. Next question. I'm sorry, this one is just a little off topic, but uh, it's one near and dear to my heart. Is there a chance that sound devices might create a box that just runs noise assist? <laughs> noise assist is very popular here at, at office hours. Most of us rely heavily on it. Uh, <laughs> slightly. It's, uh, it's certainly something we uh, 
along with a thousand other ideas that we've discussed. And the the 500 that I send to Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Daily. (laughs) Next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael is here. What is the application for time code on the wireless receiver? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about that, but uh, because you're able to record, uh, as we said, you you can do record only. So, I mean, maybe you have a scene where someone's getting in a car and driving away and you need to record audio and bring that to post. Uh, But because you're having the ability to record and then if you're outside the U.S., you can record and transmit simultaneously. You need to uh, connect the timecode signal to the A20 mini transmitter so that you've got that timecode synced up. And so it's just well, easy to connect it to the BMC on the back. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's it's worth men- mentioning with that particular workflow where you are using multiple transmitters to record that, um, you know, once they're all synced up from the Nexus timecode, you go ahead and record. And at the end of the day, you can bring all the files from those transmitters um, into your computer, and uh, you can do that via just plugging the USB-C from the transmitter directly into a computer, or you can use our PowerStation 8M um, 8-slot um, box, which allows you to connect eight transmitters at the same time to transfer all of those files in, in one step. And then we offer this free application called SD Utility, which can bring all those individual files in from each transmitter and by virtue of the fact they all have exactly the same time code we have essentially a tool which merges all of those files into one poly file and you can um you can choose a select um time code range that you want to bring in in the app and and it'll basically just spit out a uh, a poly file with it could be a 16 channel a polywave file, which then you can then deliver to post to make it easier for post. Um, you can even use the sound report uh, .csv file that we generate in an eight series to automatically conform the um, um, those files to match the exact same files on your eight series if you're using an eight series recorder. And Paul, we lost so your video a, there for a second. Um, yeah, sorry. So that's that's like a mi- that's like a middleman bit of uh, software which can be used so that you can deliver exactly what Post wants. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You had a, you, you had something. Yeah, a related question: Can you dump the uh, dump the SD card recordings uh, wirelessly from each transmitter into the receiver or into the Dante network so that you can get them into a computer without having to retrieve the cards themselves from the we, transmitters? We don't have that feature, no. Um, not to say it's not doable, but uh, yeah. Right now, there's not even a removable SD card. With the A20 minis, you have to connect via USB-C or via this power station eight-slot unit. Um, the A10, the original A10TX transmitter does have a removable micro SD card, but uh, I know what you're asking for. <laughs> you don't want to have to go through that process. I get it. <laughs> uh, next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany asked, are there plans for transmitters and mobile receivers for IFB use? It's Any another one of those on? things that we we are discussing constantly internally. We realize uh, that's uh, a missing part of our portfolio. And uh, of course, we're the whole where we're going wirelessly. We want to look at every aspect of that. Next question. Jesse Mills from San Francisco Bay Area asked, could one change the modulation from standard to long range per receiver channel? Yes, you sure can. It supports standard and long range on each. Uh, receive channel on the A20 Nexus and the, both the A20 Mini 
and the A10TX support the standard and long-range modulation schemes. Next question. Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California, and right here in our panel, does increasing the number of received channels through license unlock increase the latency of all channels? If so, how much? Nope, there's no change in latency, uh, regardless of how many channels you're receiving. <laughs> Next question. Mickey Makachor is back. Just because we have you here, uh, when are you bringing back the 970 with 128 channels of Dante and recording this time? <laughs> I feel like Paul gets that question every day, don't you? Yeah. Uh, we love that. I literally had a show where we had to find a 970. We were like, I, I got to find a 970 yeah. from some rental firm. It's such, uh, a, believe, such a great product. Believe us, we didn't really want to discontinue the 970 at all. We were forced into it due to component issues and supply chains and all of that stuff. But we do know how popular the 970 is. And it's a product we would absolutely love to do as well. And so. uh, I can't really say much more than that. Next question. Next one in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And I think we've answered this already, but can you demo us the real-time RF monitor? Yeah, I think we saw this. This question was asked a little while ago. This is all, they were all stacking up. So we, we definitely got to see that. It was amazing. Uh, next question. Mickey Makachor is back. Total system latency from wireless transmitter to Dante receiver. Uh, it's going to depend on your Dante settings in that case. Uh, I will say the... If you're using the long-range modulation, that's about 3.9 milliseconds of latency. If you're using standard modulation, it's two, two. milliseconds of latency. But then, yeah, add on whatever your Dante network uh, delay is. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has this question. With RF scanning monitoring in the receiver, could you see the A20 Nexus being a formidable competitor to Shure's Axiant range, for example, in the live event market? I mean, possibly we talked about some of the things in the concert market that we need to do, but uh, I think, yeah, the, I've used the Axiant system quite a bit, and I'd say that it's a definitely similar product. Yeah, I mean, I, I, up until now, <laughs> the Axiant has been basically, uh, that's what I asked for when I'm renting out gear. I was like, I want an Axiant um, and, uh, uh, for those things, and, and it just takes up so much, I mean, compared to this, and, and I do a lot of events with six to eight people. That's kind of like a thing that's very common for me. And so the idea of having this, I, I just keep on looking at when, when I looked at this, I was like the idea of having this little box that does all that transmission for me is, is, uh, super exciting. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asks, do you think the mini DIN connectors might be a mistake? They really don't hold very well. Which one? I'm not sure what mini DIN to? he's talking, talking about. Is he talking about uh, the TA4s or the uh, Heroes outputs? Which which connectors? I, the I think the he, power inputs or the DC output? It might even be the antenna connections that he's referring to. And, 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 I, and I think it's just really, I mean, that's pretty standard within the audio industry. I mean, those, those connections are what everybody uses. Yeah, <laughs> they're all latching connections as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, maybe the last question for the hour, unless we get, 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 get some more in there. Go ahead, next question. Mickey Makachor asked, how has the preamp design experience of SD integrated into the transmitter preamp of the Astral line? Yeah, very heavily. I mean, the, the reason that we've got gain forward is because of a patented sound devices technology for doing that capture. So we're able to, as Paul mentioned before, capture 130 dB of dynamic range on that uh, lap on the limo input on the a20 mini transmitter and so yeah very much stem from the mix pre line which you're all familiar with so yeah multi-stage adc really super low noise mic preamp stage and uh, uh 
One more question. Last question. From uh, Douglas Carmichael, what durability issues have you had with the touchscreen displays? Well, they are actually Gorilla Glass displays, um, so they're very, very robust. Um, We have found a screen protector as well, should people be really paranoid and want to use a screen protector. It's actually... uh, it's one for the Apple Watch, isn't it, Gary, if I remember yeah. rightly, that you can get them from anywhere. The 44-millimeter so, Apple Watch screen protectors fit those screens nice. You just need four of them. But these screens are very solid. I mean, if, if you are familiar with a mixed pre, then you know that they're not really subject to easy failure. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they're fantastic. And I was so excited about this product. <laughs> like, I'm still I mean, I'm just very excited about this product. As someone who does a lot of uh, the wireless in the group of the, the number of, of receiver, receivers or transmitters that you're putting this out for, I just think it's going to match up with what we're doing um, uh, really, really well. So just really, really exciting to see it. And thank you so much on such short notice for Paul and Gary to come and join us and answer all those questions so well. I really feel like it's a real, uh, real honor for us to have you guys here the day after you announce it, and uh, to really dig into the into the details. And so, um, we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alex. I mean, for you to sort of like arrange it so quickly, it's sort of obviously we're very proud to be able to jump in there that quick. Especially after we're literally shipping today, by the way. <laughs> so, that's great. Uh, You're shipping in the same week that you announced it. Amazing. Well, well, yeah, that's what, what we like to try and do, <laughs> if yeah, possible. Exactly. You know, we don't like to deal with vaporware. Yeah. So, yeah. And thanks. Thanks again, Gary, as well. Really, really great to have you here. I think it's the first time we've had you on the show. Paul's been here a couple times, but uh, it's really, really great. Hopefully we'll be able to, we might try to drag you in to talk about wireless if you're open to it. Yeah, anytime. Excellent, excellent. All right, thank you so much. And thanks to the producers for all the great questions. Um, fantastic questions, really dug into the into the details of this great product um, and, and for the first hour. Uh, thanks to our panelists, of course, we can't do this without you. And a lot of great conversation, great, great answers. And thanks to the incredible crew. There's a crew seven days a week that puts this together on the back end. This doesn't just happen inside of Zoom. <laughs> like there's there's people that are editing and, and doing the, you know, managing the audio and people greeting you when you come in and all those things. And all those people are volunteers. And we really want to, we really appreciate all of the all the time that everyone puts into it. So thank you so much. And now we're going to jump into After Hours. This is the whisper room. See, once it goes dark, we don't want to, we don't want to talk too loud. But I'm really Testing the dynamic range of our not that thing. Yeah, exactly. But for the wireless preamps with whispers. <laughs> <laughs> See how well our noise assist works on our mixed pre-3s. That's what you don't know. I think Paul knows, but Gary knows. Like, I, I, like half the half, the, half of our panelists all have mixed priests. <laughs> Not that we're addicted. We really like our noise assist, though. I think I'm going to sell my car and buy one of those. I know, I know. <laughs> that thing's worth a lot more than my car. That costs a lot more than my car. Engine price starts at 14900 or something, right? But the car doesn't generate any.